they view the world around them. They are this. Who am I? And what is my purpose? We see this today. Um, I think our modern culture actually is encouraging young people to ask this first question in particular. Who are you? Who am I? Um, The issue, though, is the answers that are being given tend to not be sufficient to actually answer fully what is needing to be answered. Who am I? Well, let us look at, this is the modern world, let us look at um, your gender. Who you are is determined by your gender, what you identify as. Who am I might be determined by who you're attracted to and things like that. But it is always a very subjective answer, and it's only something that applies just to you. And then we look at this question of, what is my purpose? It dictates how we live in the world around us, how do we view ourselves, how do we view each other. And I think that question was asked a few years ago, and the answer tend to be to have a good time, to live a good life while you can, because this is all that you have, um, and try to, try to let it be fun. But this, again, follows the same thought of it's subjective based on the person. It really doesn't look at those around us, nor does it answer any thing that says you have meaning as a person. It's just up to you how how you decide, how you define these two questions. I believe that we as Christians must have an answer to this. For ourselves, who am I? What is my purpose? But also to be able to answer these things to the world. Who are we? What is our purpose? Who are you? What is your purpose? And I think today we'll see from what Paul says to these Christians He gives a great encouragement about who they are now in Christ Jesus and what their purpose is while they are here in the immediate. So, we look at verse 4 of Ephesians, Ephesians 2, verse 4. Paul lays out the gospel very clearly. This idea of you were dead, now you are alive in Christ Jesus. A neat thing he says to them, verse 4, he does not say, he does not start with you, He does not say, we were dead, now we're alive. But he starts with the one who causes us to be alive, and that is God. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. And the thing that Paul does here is he he starts with the one who is doing this, who is accomplishing this for us. And he doesn't just say, but God made you alive, but he chooses to actually describe who God is here. He gives two defining characteristics that are important for us to understand when we think about God. He says he is first rich in mercy. Mercy is, as most of us would understand it, as is showing compassion to someone, normally an adversary, that does not deserve it at all. So we see that God is rich in mercy. He's rich in compassion to us, even though we we necessarily do not deserve it, and we're opposed to him. And Paul says, God acts because of his great love with which he loved us. So we see he has this love as a noun, and then he also uses it as a verb, with which he loved us. So these are the two things, as as we work through this passage, we should think about from God. God is the one doing this, And he does this because of him being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us. 
And Paul begins to work through the gospel, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. You have been saved by grace. By grace you have been saved. So we see our starting point is even when, we, even when you were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive. And we'll see, Paul follows a very logical argument, a very logical statement here. We'll see, um, you were dead, you've been made alive. Verse 6 will say, you have been raised to life, and now you're seated in the heavenlies. So you can see his order of thought here, where he's going with it. But he starts, all of these things are with Jesus Christ. So we see as Jesus physically died, he was raised to life. Or the first one is made made alive. We too, being dead in our sins, have been made alive. Jesus was raised to life. We too now as believers are raised to life. He ascended and is seated with God. We too now are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Because of what Jesus has done, we get to share in that with him. This is the great encouragement. And it's a neat thought. It's not that um, because the death that we are in starting here is different than that which Jesus died. It's, Paul writes that we were dead in our sins. We were dead in our transgressions. While Jesus Christ died for our sins, died for our transgressions. So there's a, there's a different thought here. But are the starting points the same in Paul's argument? And we see that God made us alive together with Christ. So we are marrying with him. And we see this important theme here at the end of verse 5. Paul says, It is by grace that you have been saved. And this will come up as we continue through. I think an interesting thing, if we just take verse 5, is that Paul says, You were dead, you've been made alive because of Jesus. I mean, that is the gospel and how we normally understand it, how we talk about it. That I was dead in my sins, I have been made new, alive with Christ. And we tend to stop there. The interesting thing that Paul does, though, is that he does not stop with that. There is more to it. And I don't think this is saying that that's not the gospel, that the gospel is not, you were dead, now you're alive. But I think there's a fuller picture Paul is wanting these recipients to understand and that we should try to understand this morning. If we look at verse 6, we have to remember God is the one doing this. God raised us up with him, him being Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. So we'll get to the heavenly places thing. What does that mean? What does that mean for us now as we think about, about who we are? But what's important to see, we have been made alive with Christ. This is all with Christ. We have been raised to life as Christ has been raised to life. And this is referring to Jesus Christ's resurrection from the grave and him walking with the disciples. And we have been seated with him in the heavenly places. So we are not just made alive and then left to our own devices to wander around and wait. But we have been made alive, and God has a continuing purpose that we would be seated with him right now in the heavenly places. We are with God right now. 
What's helpful to think about when you think about in the heavenly places, because um, it's a confusing verse, if you turn a little bit back, Paul has already explained what this means. If you will go to chapter 1 with me, Ephesians 1 verse 20. He's talking about God here. God, he brought about it in Christ, talking about our salvation. When he raised him from the dead, so we see the same language here. When God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So we see a very similar language earlier on. And this is what it means to be seated in the heavenly places for Jesus. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So, the question you should be asking now, we should be asking is, what does that mean for us if we have been seated with him in the heavenly places? Jesus is overall legitimate authority and power here on earth right now, over every nation, every government, um, every spiritual authority. We would say that Jesus has defeated sin and death uh, and dying on the cross and whatnot. But what does that mean for us? What it doesn't mean is that we also you know, can, can go tell a government what should happen and then that, that is what happens. But if the great encouragement here, I think there's two encouragements to think about. For those who live in a country or in a, in a culture where demonic activity is a big deal, where they grew up fearing um, evil forces and things of that sort, the great encouragement here for them and our understanding is that we now have authority over that because Jesus has conquered all of it and has authority over it right now. The other encouragement we should see is Paul talks about how when we were in death, when we were in sin, we were actually controlled by, and he uses this word of, we walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air. Talking about Satan, talking about I meant evil things. We were not just in our sin, but we were ruled over it. And Jesus has defeated it and now has authority over it. And we are seated with him. Which means that we now have authority and power over our sin of our past. We no longer have to be controlled and ruled by it. And this is the great encouragement that we will see here that we are not just raised to life, but we actually have freedom from everything in our past. That we have authority because we are with Christ. And we see at the end of verse 6, this is all done in Christ Jesus. It is because of him that we are able to be raised to life and seated with him. In verse 7, we reach the big so that in any uh, portion of scripture, any phrase, anytime you see a so that or a for, it's, it's a purpose clause that's happening. So it's something that says, all of this has happened so that this would happen, or so that this thing would be accomplished. He says, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So all of this has happened that God might show 
the riches of his grace, which we can see here as you know, our salvation of what he has freely given to us, through, or some, my translation here says in, some translations say through, he does this through his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So when we think about how God chooses to show his grace to the world right now, in this age and the ages to come, he does this through what Christ Jesus has done and what he has done in us, through our lives and the change that has happened. So when we think about our place in this, we have a continuing purpose right now that is tied to God's work of salvation, of making his grace known, making what he has done through Jesus Christ known in the world. I think when um, I became a, a Christian early on in life, I think around the ages of seven or eight, my parents could you know, give you the exact probably day and, and, and year. Uh, but becoming a Christian at a young age, there was a, a good solid four to, to eight years of trying to figure out Okay, I'm, I'm a believer, I have been saved, I am confident in that, but what is my purpose right now? Is it just to live, um, and then when I, when I die I'll be in heaven with God, or maybe he'll come back before that happens? Is there an immediate purpose in, in my living right now, or am I just saved to go to heaven? And I think the challenge for us right here is to see that we are saved not for ourselves, primarily, but for God's grace to be made known. We can look at verses 8 through 9 here. This is the second clause in, uh, in Paul's middle of his argument in this letter. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. He is working here to explain the nature of the salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So Paul is emphasizing something here. Um, and he's emphasizing the nature of the salvation that we've been saved through grace. So it's not something that we have earned. It's something that God has freely given to us. We have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourself. It is the gift of God. And then Paul chooses, you think it is the gift of God? I mean, that would very clearly say that this is not something that you have done, it's been freely been, been given. But Paul chooses to emphasize here something I think he understood too well about us as people. He says, This is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I think he understood that we as as just people, we as Christians, over time, want to say, you know, God, Jesus did do this. He did save me. Um, but who I am today is actually because of how I have sought to serve him. I have done something within myself and worked in such a way that I am now who I am. I have kind of redeemed my salvation by my own actions. And... That is not what Paul's saying. Paul is speaking to a large number of Christians and he's trying to emphasize here nothing that you have done and nothing about yourself right now is something that you can claim you have actually done. For it was started, it is, it is fully by God's grace 
by the work of God. We see all in the first part that God is the one acting. This was all done in Jesus Christ. It is the gift of God that we have been saved and for who we are right now. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast in themselves. But as we, as we saw earlier in verse 7, we are supposed to boast in God and what Jesus has done. Verse 10 is, in my opinion, kind of the turning point in the letter of Ephesians. Uh, Paul is, is emphasizing what the believers know, what they think about God. And here he is beginning to say, how do we live in relation to this? If we look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. These two words, workmanship and um, this idea of being created in Christ Jesus, the created concept should and would have had these believers think about uh, God's creating the world back in Genesis. That's when, when it refers to God creating, that's normally where, where it's referencing all throughout Scripture. And there's this great encouragement here that God created you know, Adam and Eve. God created mankind. We see that in Genesis. Now he has done something new, that we have been created now in Christ Jesus. And he says, for we are his workmanship. This term workmanship is used in three primarily different ways in the Bible. Uh, the first is that of a, of a potter and his skill in sculpting clay, um, using it for a specific purpose, a specific goal. The second is that of a jeweler making a crown for a king. So with, again, specifics and a purpose in mind here. And the third concept of workmanship is that of a poet and his skill in writing poetry. So these are all the, the potter, the, the craftsman for a crown, and that of a poet are all skills and all things that are very specific, that are normally considered fine arts, beautiful things to be made, and that require great skill in crafting and with great purpose. This is the word that Paul uses to describe who we are now because of Christ Jesus. That God has made us, he has created us new with purpose, with intention and meaning, and it defines who we are as people, that we are created new in Christ Jesus, that we are God's workmanship. This is a great answer for who we are. For a five-year-old child to be able to proclaim, for someone um, who just has a new family with little, little ones running around, and for, for people in all different ages, that we are created in Christ Jesus now. We are God's workmanship. And he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. This idea here of for good works might be a little surprising in that in verse 9 he says, Paul says, this is not a result of works so that no one may boast. So it's almost as if Paul is going back on what he said earlier that we are not supposed to do things out of works. We're not supposed to do works. That's not our salvation. 
But what he is saying is, we do not do works. There is no work that attains salvation. But because we are saved, we have been saved. He actually says here, we have been created for to do good works. This is a surprising thought, I think, uh, for many reading this, of it's not just to proclaim the gospel, which I think that's an intricate part of this as seen earlier, but he's saying something else here for good works. And he explains this more. He says, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. God has prepared certain things beforehand for us to do, these good works to do. I had originally, when I first read this, I thought it was, Paul was referring to this idea of, um, if you follow any like missionaries or kind of big movements in the world, there's these stories of God giving people dreams of like, of revealing himself to them, of revealing the gospel in some way or Jesus Christ some way in dreams, and will instruct them to go in like go into the marketplace and the first person you see with the red shirt go up and ask them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, this is kind of this beautiful, crazy situation and they do and um, it's a missionary who's there and they share the gospel and it's just this incredible story. And I think those things certainly do happen. God certainly does that. But I don't think that's what Paul is emphasizing here. That, that we should just wait around for this incredible circumstance to happen, either with our family members or with um, people out in the grocery store or something like that. Because he says, God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. This idea of walk, he could have said that God prepared beforehand that we should do them, that we should uh, complete the works, but he says that we would walk in them. And it's the idea of someone's whole being, their whole purpose, daily doing this. This idea of walking. It's not just an action here. When we think about what this means now, we've been created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We have our identity now. Who are we? Created new in Christ Jesus. We are God's workmanship. What is my purpose to do good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. I was trying to figure out um, how, to, how to how to kind of uh, explain more what these good works would look like. If it's sharing the gospel, if, um, if that's what Paul's emphasizing here. But as I said, this is a turning point in Paul's letter where the rest of it really, especially from chapter 4 on, Paul uses to give practical instruction of what would be right for the believers to do. I think it's good for us to hear some of these. He speaks here to the relationships that we have with one another and from church member to church member. This is in 4, 2 through 3. To the church, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit, through the bond of peace. There is instruction here specifically for how we interact with each other. 5, 22 through 24. Wives, to the wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of the body. 
Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives are submit to their husbands in everything. To husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. I'm not going into any detail or describing these super well um, or expounding upon them, but the idea here is see that this idea of doing good works that God has prepared for us to walk in them pertain in our everyday relations to our, our local believers, to the church, for spouses to one another. He continues and says, To children, obey your parents in the Lord, because this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may have a long life in the land. To parents, don't stir up anger in your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. He is referring this next part to, to slaves back in his day, but this could also be understood as, as workers in our modern context. Workers, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Even in the workplace environment, there is instruction of how we ought to live and how we're supposed to do certain things for one another that glorify the Lord. And Paul even uses the same mindset for how we're supposed to interact with ourselves and also with God. He says, to oneself, take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength, put on the full armor of God so that you can, you can stand against the schemes of the devil. When we think of what is our purpose right now, it is not simply to wait for this moment where we can share the gospel with a complete stranger. And it is not either to do works that would attain or perfect our salvation. It's something here that Paul is wanting, us to, wanting the believers to understand that is in our everyday surrounding that God has already prepared for us. Perhaps a brother, perhaps a sibling, perhaps a parent to how we interact with our own children in our workplace, in the church, with local believers, and in our own relationship with God. That these certain works that we're supposed to do to glorify Him, God has already prepared for us to do, and they are around us right now. I think this is a much deeper challenge than wait for a gospel opportunity. And I think this is something that, as we leave today, we can be thinking about either over lunch or um, take some time now to, to think through who in my immediate surrounding has God already been preparing for me to walk and live in a certain way that I may glorify him and share the gospel with them. 
I think let us be encouraged today with the thought of who am I? I have been made alive with Christ. I have been, I am now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I've been created new in Christ Jesus. And then what is my purpose right now? It is to do good works and to live in a certain way that is glorifying to God in the immediate. And I can trust that God has already prepared these beforehand, that I can walk in them with confidence. I would like to, um, to close us in a word of prayer, and then I believe we have uh, one more worship song, and then we'll be dismissed for today. Dear Lord, thank you for the encouragement and instruction of your word. Thank you for, for guiding and leading us, not only in uh, miraculous moments that you do and that you, you provide, but also in the day-to-day that you would desire in our relationships to walk confidently and boldly to glorify you. That even when we are by ourselves, you desire that we would live in a certain way to glorify you. Please help us all um, understand your words and understand them in our context to be able to think towards our fellow brother and sister, our spouse, our um, family members in the church, that how can I glorify you in my service to them today and throughout this week? Thank you for your word. Please strengthen and encourage this church uh, today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.